Good morning. I want to wish you a Merry Christmas. It's my pleasure uh, with you this morning to jump into the Christmas story where we'll be kind of the next uh, t- three times we gather together. And so if you are really enjoying Ephesians, we'll come back to that. Uh, but Christmas is actually one of the more difficult times in the year for pastors when they prepare sermons. And it's difficult because we already know what we're going to preach. It's kind of set for us by the calendar. Uh, but we, we don't want to say the same thing every year. Um, and so we kind of left jumping into this and saying, okay, this is going to be unoriginal because it's Christmas. And for 2,000 years, pastors have been proclaiming uh, the Christmas story faithfully. And so as you come to any Christmas gathering, whether it's here or someone somewhere else, um, as you're spending time with family, I really pray that for each of us as we jump into that, that we would simply ask ourselves, is the story being faithfully told? We're not here to reinvent the story of Christmas, but to retell it. So I wanted to begin with this, is that the story of the nativity, the story of the coming of God in human flesh, is a story of really good news. And really, that's the reason that Christmas is exciting, and that's the reason for all the festivity. And it's even in this strange kind of culture we live in, where uh, we all know it's Christmas, but there's this strange kind of, let's not say the name Christmas. We say, okay, let's, let's make a secular word for Christmas. And so what we did is we threw out holiday, which is even funnier because it means holy day. That sounds awfully secular, right? Holy day. Happy holy days. We, we can't get away from it. We're celebrating the time at which Jesus came into the world. Now, we don't actually think it happened on December 25th. We have no real date to go on. But we chose a time of the year to celebrate it. Because if anything is worth celebrating, it is God coming in human form to save sinful men and women. And so we're gathered around today and around our families in the coming weeks to celebrate the reality that the very Son of God took on human form to save sinful men and women like us. And that is really, really good news. So what we want to do these next few times we gather is kind of zero in on some things the Bible says about who this child is because that's what makes the story important. Uh, We have behind us an image of the nativity scene. In our home, we really like them. It's one of the things that Alicia loves about Christmas is nativity scenes. And so we have nativity scenes from various cultures representing kind of different takes on it. And not only that, their own kind of way of presenting art and crafting uh, figurines. And we really love placing those around the home. But the thing that makes the Christmas story kind of compelling is not the artwork of the nativity scene, which, by the way, is really hard to find in India. Um, nativity scenes are not rampant there. Um, you can get Ganesh and Vishnu really easy, uh, but Jesus is much harder to find. But this beautiful artwork, and that's not what makes it compelling. That Oh, that, that's a pretty picture of some people around a baby and some sheep. That's just a strange story if there's no significance and weight to it. And the weight to the story is found in who this child is. And I want to just begin briefly with the first proclamation of the birth of Jesus that the angels gave the shepherds outside of Bethlehem. In verse 10 of Luke chapter 2, the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, 
I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So the kind of the first announcement of the birth of this child didn't go out uh, from tiny prints. His mom and dad arranged the most appropriate, cute picture and sent that birth announcement out to all their friends and family. This was very quick. Immediately upon the birth of this child, angels filled the night sky and pronounced his birth to lowly shepherds. And their proclamation was that they brought good news for all people. That's why we proclaim the Christmas message. That's why we tell the Christmas story. That's ultimately why we do everything we do as a church here is because the coming of this child and what he would do for sinful humanity is good news for all people. I want to jump into why this is so important, but I want you to kind of key in on what the angel says. He says the good news is found not in the birth of a child, not in a quaint manger scene. The good news is found that this child is Christ the Lord. Christ is a is a Greek word that kind of represents a Hebrew word Messiah. That's like the anointed one, the one chosen and appointed by God who they had been waited for, waiting for to save them, to draw them out of darkness of sin and despair that it had caused. And this is the one he's here. He's present. Not only this one who would save, but he's special and different than any other kind of human savior that we had ever seen. See, everyone's looking for a savior in this world. That's not abnormal. If you're a Texans fan, you're looking for the first round draft pick to be your functional savior. And if you're a Cowboys fan, you've learned long ago that Tony Romo is not that man. If you work at a company and it's struggling, the new CEO, we expect him to come in and save the day. We are all looking for that. And so there, there are men and women who have functioned in those capacities for other people. But Jesus, different from any other functional Savior, is the Lord. So we've elevated the game beyond someone who just comes in and fixes things. But this is the Lord present as we've been waiting for. Christ the Lord, come in human form. In Isaiah chapter 7, the prophet, years and years and years before the birth of this child, proclaimed something amazing about who this child would be. And I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord... Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah establishes the promise of a coming Emmanuel. This one who would come, who would be a sign, kind of conceived of a virgin, so a miraculous birth, foretold hundreds of years in advance, and said, This child will be Emmanuel. In Matthew chapter 1, that title is ascribed to Jesus. And Matthew is helpful because he defines Emmanuel for us and says, which means God with us. And when we study and examine the Christmas story, when we think upon and meditate the story of Christmas, this is what we want to talk about today is the promise of God with us. 
And this is a, a drastic distinction between the, the gospel of Jesus Christ and any other religious group that we've ever come into contact with. Is that God has taken on human form, descended in humility to humanity and is with us. Every other religious system in the world is built around us kind of elevating ourselves through religious piety, through good deeds, through whatever it is, to being like God. Even kind of um, our, our Mormon friends who kind of share a lot of the same ethics with us. And the Mormon story is ultimately that God became, that man became God. That uh, a man somewhere was good enough at some point that he became God. But the Christian story is the complete opposite of that. And says that God who had infinitely existed, became man. So the promise that we celebrate today, that I hope sinks into us today, is that God is with us. That God is not distant, but near. God is not absent, but present. And that's the story of Christmas. It's the story of a God who comes to His people. But for that promise to make sense, we need to understand the backdrop in which it's given. You see, when the prophets write, they're not writing in Israel from this position of strength and prosperity. Things are quite difficult for them when the stories and promises of the Messiah come. The people had been given this commission from God to to live as a light amongst the nation, to be a kingdom of priests who would represent God to all people. And they, like us, stumbled in that calling. They turned and worshipped other gods. They trusted in other nations and in their own strength and might. And ultimately, they were unfaithful to God's covenant with them. And God had told them, if you will follow me faithfully, I will bless you. And he has this amazing saying in Deuteronomy 28 where he says, I will bless you in the city and bless you in the countryside and blessing shall overtake you. But then he tells them, if you turn from me, if you reject my covenant, Cursing will overtake you. And what God did is He removed His hand of protection from His people. So that the nations surrounding them who desired to take control of them, who put them in submission and subjection to them, were allowed to because God's hand of blessing, provision, and protection was removed because they had rejected Him. And you see this even early on in the story of Israel. God had called them out as His people. He says, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be your king. And the people rejected God as king and said, we want a human king. We want a king like the other nations. And so their trajectory was set. And with every generation, largely, the people began to move further and further from God to the point that God has said, if you don't want me, I'll allow you to experience life without me. And he removed his blessing from them. And that's the world that the prophets write in. The kingdom gets divided. They begin to struggle and experience defeat and famine. And Isaiah, looking forward to all of this, when he describes the coming of Jesus, describes it in the language of light and darkness. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, he describes it this way. He says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. So, I want you to understand the way the prophet kind of establishes the reality for the people who are going to experience this promise. He says there are people who live in darkness. 
who walk in, in kind of this deep spiritual darkness. And in the midst of that, a promise is going to come. But, but in order to really appreciate the hope that this promise would kind of well up in the people, it's important to understand the darkness that they lived in because of their sin. So things are difficult. The people were wandering in darkness and God's blessing and protection had been removed for them. See, for generations, the people of Israel coming out of the wilderness as God carried them through Egypt. If you're not familiar with the story of the Exodus, I think DreamWorks did a, did a movie about it and you can catch up there. Uh, but God established them as a nation. Delivered them from slavery, from the greatest empire in the ancient world. And as he walked through the wilderness with them, the presence of God's glory was was there. And we don't understand exactly what that looked like. Uh, We understand that it was somewhat frightening. And and that it accompanied them with this pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud or smoke that would indicate where they were to go. And that, that that rested kind of as they would stop, they would set up this tabernacle, this tent of meeting where they would gather for worship. And in the holiest of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant rested, the very glory of God in an observable way was present. And then God had commissioned them to establish a temple there in Jerusalem when they took the land. And he builds the temple. And the glory of God is present in the, holiest of, in the holy of holies. And so they kind of always had this assurance that, that God was with them. Because they could physically, they could look and they could see. There, there's the glory of God. Or the, they knew that the priests would enter into the Holy of Holies. And one of the things that happened as they continued to walk from him. And he encourage you to read the book of Ezekiel in its fullness in your spare time this holiday. Uh, but Ezekiel chapter 10 describes the presence of the glory of God leaving the city. And so the people who walked in the day that Jesus was born. Walked in darkness without assurance of God's presence, without the blessing of his protection in what we call this period of silence, where for 400 years they had no word from God and they were just kind of living in the midst of the judgment for their sin. And he says in the midst of that. God is with us. And I think this is important because some of you guys have been walking through some really difficult things this season of life. Maybe you look back on 2013 and this was a hard, difficult year. And it's important for you, just like the people of Israel who went 400 years of suffering to know at this time that God is with us. That he hasn't abandoned us, that he hasn't walked away from us, that he's with us. When the prophet Zephaniah describes this hope and reiterates it to the people of God, he expounds on this. He continues to kind of press in this idea of God's presence. In Zephaniah 3.14, he says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, and shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hearts grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. 
He will quiet you by his love and he will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts and I will change their shame into praise. Renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in and I will gather to you together for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples on the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes says the Lord. One of the things I love when you read the prophets, and you see this in Zephaniah, is that he speaks in past tense of a future event. And so Zephaniah is talking about something that has yet to happen, but he's saying it as if it's already happened. It's what we call a prophetic past tense, where the prophet is speaking of something with such certainty, even though it hasn't happened, that he proclaims it as if it's already done, because God has purposed in his heart to do it and has communicated it through his word to his people, so you can rest assured it will come to pass. And he shares of a day that God will be with his people, and he will wipe away their judgment and their guilt, He'll remove their oppressors from them and he will liberate them and set them free. He makes four distinct promises here. He says, one, when the Lord is with you, he will remove your guilt. Second, he'll remove your fear. Third, he'll restore your hope. And fourth, he'll redeem you from the bondage of sin. And these are ultimately the promises. These are the things that we need. We need our guilt removed from us because we are guilty. The Bible says we've all sinned and fall short of God's glory and that the judgment for that sin is death. We're guilty. And what we need is not someone to tell us it'll be okay. Rather, we need someone to take our guilt away from us. Because of our guilt, we live in fear. You see, sin breeds secrecy and paranoia. And you guys know this because we've all sinned in some way at some point that we thought we would just keep to ourselves. And we thought that'll, that'll never be seen. That'll never come to light. I'll never have to deal with that. And it breeds this consistent fear of being exposed. So one of the wonderful things about the grace of God is that he's fully aware of our sin. That there are no secrets before him and he loves us the same. That everything is brought out into the light and God's affection for us is unchanged. And that's one of the ways that the grace of God is liberating. It's because the very basis of the gospel is that we go, okay, we are ridiculously sinful, far than we could ever imagine. And in that affirmation, right, and going, yes, that's true of me. I can just kind of let down this sense of pretense that everything has got to be okay. Because when I become a Christian, the first piece of this is affirming how wretched I am and how much I need God to not only save, but transform me. And in that recognition, The need to keep my sin a secret fades away. Because I know it's true and the Lord knows it. And my brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, they know it too. 
There's only sinful people in the church. And God's grace disarms fear in confronting our sin. We don't have to fear being exposed for what we've already freely confessed. God takes that away from us. It says that when, when the Lord would come as our king and be in our midst, our hope would be restored. Because he's mighty to save and, and we walk in the presence of that hope. That's one of the great themes of Advent. If you do the Advent wreath and its candles as the church has for a couple thousand years, you'll, you'll see hope is one of the candles that we light. It's one of the first ones that we light because it reminds us that, that in the midst of the darkness of sin, that there is a Redeemer who will come. The Christmas story isn't the completion of that. It's in many ways uh, the... the Kind of the climax of what God is going to do in the whole life of Jesus. But there's more to come. There's more to come. He's going to finish the work of redemption. But in Christmas and the promise of God with us. We're reminded that he's good and mighty. We're reminded that he's present. And our hope is renewed. Fourth, he said he would redeem us from sin. In Zephaniah, he speaks of breaking the bonds and the yoke of their enemies. The Bible describes sin as our very enemy. And the promise in Jesus that we have is not only would he remove our guilt, but in his spirit being sent to us, he would empower us to walk in victory over our sin, breaking the bonds of slavery, and redeeming us. And what I want you to see is that God is here. But he's here in mercy. You see, because God had ultimately the right to judge. Because we are guilty. And yet when he comes to us in Christ, he comes to us as a redeemer, not one who is here to condemn or judge. And you think about John chapter 3, verse 16. It's one of the first verses you learn as a kid growing up. And I want you to just think through this with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So when Jesus comes at Christmas, this baby, he does not come to judge. He comes to save. See, God didn't need to take any action to judge us. We were already stood condemned. You continue reading John 3, you'll see that. But God intervenes with the promise of Emmanuel to save, not to condemn. That all who would believe in his son... By his death, paying the penalty for our sin, his resurrection, giving us the promise of eternal life, would be forgiven. Their sins wiped away. So God is with us. And he's here in mercy. I also want you to think and meditate on this, is that God is with us because God is for us. He came to us because of his love for us and his desire to save us. If you read in Romans chapter 8 with me, you'll, you'll see this played out compellingly. In verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus, the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is now at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I want you to slide down to verse 38 with me. He says, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is with us and He is for us. And the Bible says if God is for us, it doesn't matter who's against us. I mean, can people be against? Absolutely, they, they can. It's just that it doesn't matter. Because God is Lord and He reigns as King over all heaven and earth. And so the enemy and life circumstances, whatever it is, can, can throw at us whatever they will. And it just, it's irrelevant. It doesn't mean they can't bring me down and I'll, and I'll never stop kind of, never stop grinning and, and life will always turn out roses. That, that's not the depiction here. What is the depiction is it, it just doesn't matter. Notice the list of things that Paul says. He says, God is with us and for us. Can famine hurt us? No, not really. Can persecution and suffering? See, Paul lists all these sufferings and these aren't mythical kind of theoretical things that might happen. These are actual experiences in his life. And he says, but you know what? It can't separate me from the love of Christ. It's this love that transcends anything this hard and difficult world can throw at us. And some of you guys, right, you're experiencing Christmas this year for the first time uh, since some major kind of cataclysmic event in your family. And it could be a number of things. It could be job loss. It could be some kind of financial downturn or, or getting... Uh, Getting foreclosed on. It could be a divorce or the death of a loved one. Any of those things, right? This, for a lot of us, is the first Christmas in this new reality that we don't enjoy. And I want you to know that Christmas is the reminder of God with you. And not only that He's present, that He's present in mercy and that He is for you. And that whatever that thing that happened was, while it is not insignificant, because it is. It is not comparable to the weight of the love of God towards you. That in the story of Jesus, God with us, we find the story of a God who enters into our suffering with us. The God who knows our pain. And so you can cry out to Him this year as you kind of go through these first experiences without that person you loved as a part of the family and present or, or whatever the situation is that makes this Christmas harder than any other. When you cry out to Him, you cry out to Him as one who's enter into your suffering. Who's aware of your cries and who's compelled to move. In the beginning of the story of the Bible, if you go back, it's written by a guy named Moses. The first five books, he teased the whole thing off. His first interaction with God is this burning bush. And in that experience in Exodus chapter 3, Moses learns a few things about God. He learns that God has heard the cries of his people. 
that he was moved with compassion and that he desires to redeem them. That's kind of the basis to the writing of the Bible is a God who enters into the suffering of humanity with the will, desire and capacity to bring comfort and salvation. Yes, it's hard, but he's present and he's for you. And that's enough. Because that is a promise of eternal weight. Everything else in this life is fleeting. But nothing can separate us from the love of God. Finally, the last promise that I think is important is to recognize that God will never leave us. When Jesus gives his marching orders to the church, something we talk about a lot here in Matthew 28, he tells them, To go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he gives them this promise. And I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Just a few pages later in the Bible, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit who lives and dwells within the Christian. So that we're always walking in the presence of God as Jesus has sent the Spirit to us. And you have this movement from God's glory in an impersonal, visible way uh, to his presence in Jesus. Physical. You could interact with him. He would tell stories. He would hug children to something far more personal where the spirit dwells within us. We looked at that last week, how Jesus says that's actually to your advantage that I go to the father and send the spirit to you. And you get this final depiction of. In Revelation 21 of our interaction with God. I want you to turn to your very backs of your Bible. Because I want you to see this thing traced through. Revelation 21 verse 1. He said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things has passed away. I want you to see the emphasis of of the coming of the kingdom of heaven into earth in its fullness is not given on things that we talk about when we depict heaven. It's not mansions. It's it's not clouds. It's not streets of gold. You can find that language in the Bible. It's present, but it's not the emphasis. The emphasis is, is this is God saying the dwelling of God is with men. And I'm going to be with you. And you're going to be my people. And I'm going to be your God. And that's over and over the promise of what God is going to do at the culmination of all things. Is that God will be with us. And we'll be with him. And this wall of sin that separates us. That creates division and distance in our relationship. Will be completely obliterated. As he gives to the promise to Jeremiah. That he'll write on our hearts his law. So that we'll never run from them. That's the promise. Is that God is with us. And he'll never leave us. And that this experience of God's presence with us. Is only going to grow exponentially. In terms of our experience. 
appreciation and joy in it. And Christmas is this moment where kind of the kingdom of heaven breaks into human history. I want you to think about this. We have God in in his physical presence with men and women who don't know what this baby is. They can't fathom it, can't really understand it. And then you have the angels who surround the throne of God in heaven. They descend to earth and they begin to sing God's praises before humanity, before lowly men and women. And heaven breaks into human history. And it's what N.T. Wright, the theologian in the UK, calls the interlocking nature of heaven and earth. That they are two kind of separate realms, but they weren't built to be distinct, but rather to consistently interlock with one another so that God in His grace reaches into our reality, repeatedly drawing us to Him. And that this whole thing culminates at the return of Jesus. This Jesus who came as a baby in humility and weakness, who returns as a king in power and authority to establish a kingdom, the kingdom of heaven on earth. You notice that? The new heaven descending as the king returns. The promise overwhelmingly in the Bible for us is that we will be with God. That He will be ours and we will be His. And if to you that promise doesn't seem appeasing, it may be just that you don't know this God. If for you the promise of a mansion and streets of gold are more compelling than God Himself, the fountain of inexhaustible joy, I don't know if you've met Him. See, God is this loving Father who pursues His children, who sent His only Son to die to redeem us. And and knowing Him is far more significant than any of the gifts He could give us. He gives us gifts. He gives us blessings and good things because He wants us to turn to Him in praise. Because He wants us to know Him rightly. My fear for many of us is that we've mistaken our hope in being found in blessings from God. Not simply in God. And Christmas for us is a renewed reminder that God is the greatest gift He could give. That He has given us Himself. And that that experience of of oneness with Him, of knowing Him and Him being with us will only grow as we pursue and follow Him. And whatever your life circumstance is, He is present. God is with us. He's come in mercy because God is for us. And God will never leave us. That is why the Christmas story is so compelling. Because it's a story of a God who pursues men and women who have run from Him. Who draws them by His grace in Jesus To experience the greatest joy they would ever know. It's only found in Him. So if you're here today and and you've never trusted in Jesus. You've never walked with the Lord or pursued a relationship with Him. Today could be the day. And it's very simple. You believe that this Jesus who came is the only Son of God. Who lived a sinless life. Who died for your sins. Paying the penalty that you deserve before a holy God. And rose again. And then in faith in Him. 
trusting him and what he did. God takes your sin, he wipes them away. He forgives you. And he invites you into the family and it's a simple act of faith. If you're here today and you're a Christian, I want to remind you that the good news of the gospel is not the blessing that God gives us, but rather that God gives us himself. We get him. And he is far more precious than anything this world offers. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that in your son, Jesus coming. You demonstrated yet again to us that you are with us. Father, I pray that we would walk in an ever-increasing awareness of your presence, your love for us. That we would cling to your promise that nothing can separate us from your love towards us in Christ. And that that would bring us comfort this year. That that would bring us courage to walk faithfully with you. Father, I pray that you would place your giving of yourself to us at this Christmas as supreme in our hearts and our relationship with you. And for those of us who have kind of sought after your blessings rather than you, that you would turn us again. That we would again rejoice in you. That you've chosen to be near to us, even though Lord, we're hard to love. Father, I pray for those who are here who have not trusted in your son, Jesus, that your spirit would do a work in them even now. That they would sense their need for a savior, that we all walk guilty of sin before you, but that Jesus died on the cross paying our penalty. That they would accept that gift and rejoice in the hope of eternal life with you. We pray that our time of worship today would be pleasing to you, would honor your son, that your spirit would move freely in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.